0: Close. I'm like Bill um, in that where I originally was going to go, I'm not going to go anymore because I've been thinking this week because of everything that's happened about things like honor and integrity, and um, devotion, and things of this nature that um, we don't think about a whole lot sometimes, but we need to think about it because it's something that should be in all of our hearts. And I'm going to eventually touch on a couple of things that are historic as far as the United States is concerned and I understand that this may be something that some of you are not very familiar with but it's not going to be long or anything that's going to cause you great pain I don't think so I want to start with a scripture that uh, most of us are familiar with Uh, Again, Bill spent a lot of time in this particular book of the Bible. It's out of Philippians. It's in Philippians 4, 8. And this is what it says. It says, finally, brothers. I'll wait a second if you want to get there for those of you that are turning to Philippians 4, 8. It says, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. So Paul is telling us, These are the things that we should be thinking about. He's finishing his letter to the Christians in Philippi, the city of Philippi. And he says this. Sort of sounds like he's saying, be like Jesus, doesn't it? Because that's what we're supposed to be. And then the next verse after that. Says, you think about these things, and the next verse says, practice these things. You can't practice things that you don't think about first. So if your mind is dwelling on these things, the things that are honorable, the things that are just, the things that are excellent, then you can begin to practice them. But you can't practice them if your mind never dwells on it. So thinking about these things is preparation to doing these things. And we should know that the Greek word that we translate honorable means worthy of respect. Do the things that are worthy of respect, that are honorable. In the book of Hebrews, when we get to... close to the end of the book the writer of hebrews in hebrews 13:18 says this pray for us for we are sure that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things we desire to conduct ourselves honorably in all things and then he says I urge you to do it too. Conduct yourselves honorably in all things. That's the preamble. Preamble means the beginning. And now we get into the the main part. What does it mean if someone should say of a person, he's an honorable man? First of all, you probably are not going to hear that these days. It's a it's a term that's just about disappeared from our vocabulary. In the dictionary, you'll see the word honor described as adherence to principles considered right. So that's what honorable means. It means you walk and believe in things that are right. You do that if you're honorable. It's also linked to the word integrity. So you see the two words linked together, honor and integrity. And integrity means conducting yourselves with honor. So you can see how they're linked together. And just to expound the word integrity further, it means uncompromising adherence to moral and ethical principles. That's what integrity means. Uncompromising adherence to moral and ethical principles. Another rare term these days is saying someone is a person of principle. You don't hear that very often either. A person A principle is one who is uncompromising. Now that doesn't mean that he's uncompromising in every discussion or negotiation of important issues. But he's uncompromising when you're talking about or with respect to moral and ethical principles. So if it has to do with with morality, it has to do with ethics, then he's uncompromising. If we're talking about things that don't involve that, you can compromise. But a person of integrity, a person of principle, doesn't compromise when it comes to ethics or morality. Integrity also reflects or refers to soundness of character and honesty. The book of James gives a hint of virtue, gives a list. Excuse me, a list of virtues that are to be plainly revealed in the Christian life. In James five twelve, it's he writes, "But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth, or by any other oath. But let your yes be yes, and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation." The trustworthiness of a person's word is a virtue. It's a virtue that's above all. It's found in the simple statement, yes and no. And what James means is that integrity requires a kind of honesty that indicates that when we say we will do something, our word can be trusted. We should not have to to require somebody swear upon something so that we think we can trust his word a simple yes a simple no is all that should be required people of integrity can be trusted on the basis of what they say one person made this distinction between between a politician and a statesman. He said a politician is a person who looks to the next election while a statesman is a person who looks to the next generation. And There's a lot of difference. Now we know that it's not fair to classify all politicians As people that compromise principle in order to be elected to office. Mostly it seems to be true, but we can't say that it's always true of every politician. To our shame, we can find a lack of virtue in many churches these days. We can find it through ministers who were prepared to compromise the truth of the gospel for the sake of popularity. That's the same lack of integrity that destroyed the nation of Israel in the Old Testament, where the false prophets proclaimed what they knew the people wanted to hear rather than what God had told them to say. This is what the Lord told Jeremiah, a prophet in the Old Testament. He told Jeremiah, this is what he told him to say about the false prophets. He said, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Do not let your prophets who are are in your midst and your diviners deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams which they dream, For they prophesy falsely in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. And in another place in Jeremiah, he says, An appalling and a horrible thing has happened in the land. The prophets prophesy falsely, and the priests rule on their own authority, and my people love it so. But what will you do at the end of it? What are you going to do when you come to an end and you've listened to all these false things that don't involve integrity, that do not involve honor, that do not involve trust? We can see a great example of a lack of integrity in the judgment that was given by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate. With Jesus. After he had examined and interrogated Jesus. Pilate told the mob outside. I find no fault in this man. Yet after saying this. Pilate was willing to deliver Jesus to this mob. Because of political compromise. Principal went out the window. Ethics went out the window. They were thrown to the wind because of a mob that he was afraid of or wanted to appease. In the Old Testament, we see in Isaiah 6, the vision that the prophet had. These are words of scripture that we're very familiar with. The first, what, seven or eight verses, the first seven verses in Isaiah 6 say this. This is what the prophet saw. He says, in the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim, which are an order of angels, stood above him, each having six wings, with two he covered his feet, with two he covered his feet, excuse me. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to one another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongues. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. In a response to the angels crying out, holy, 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 Isaiah cried out, woe is me, I'm ruined. Before that vision, Isaiah was considered one of the most upright, one of the most righteous men in the kingdom, in the nation of Israel. But as soon as he saw the Lord, he fell apart. He says, I'm ruined. He realized that his righteousness was not righteousness at all. He saw what true virtue and integrity looked like. And he said, woe is me. And woe means sorrow, grief, and misery. It means affliction and trouble. John Calvin said this is a common lot of human beings as long as they keep their eyes fixed on earthly experiences they're able to flatter themselves as their virtue as it is their virtue and integrity but once they look to heaven and consider even for a moment what kind of being god is they begin shaking and trembling losing all illusion Of their integrity. So, what's he saying? He's saying, when I look at you, I can say, Well, I'm pretty good. I'm better than this person, or I do better than them. But if you look at God, all of a sudden, all your pretense, all the way you think you are wonderful or you're walking rightly disappears because you see what true righteousness looks like. And in comparison, we're undone, we're ruined we fall apart. Christians are to reflect the character of God. We're to be uncompromising with respect to ethical principles. We're to be persons of honor whose word can be trusted. In the 19th century, the Frenchman, Alexis de Tocqueville, said this: "Nothing is more wonderful than the art of being free, but nothing is harder to learn how to use than freedom." In 1787, about a hundred days, during the summer in the city of Philadelphia, Some of America's most brilliant people gathered together to create what became the Constitution of the United States, a new country. They were creating the legal foundation of a form of government that had never been tried before, something called the USA. George Washington was there. So was Benjamin Franklin. James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, Roger Sherman, among others, were all at this convention in Philadelphia in 1787. Dr. James McHenry, a delegate from Maryland, was 34 years old and one of the youngest men at the convention. McHenry witnessed a historical exchange And shortly after that, he wrote it down, and we still have his notes today. That's why we know what happened and what he said. So what did he write in his notes? McHenry wrote that when Benjamin Franklin emerged from the building, he was accosted, not in an awful way, but by a woman, a Mrs. Powell of Philadelphia. At that time, Franklin was 81 years old. He was the oldest delegate to the Constitutional Convention and he was a man of great influence. And according to McHenry, Mrs. Powell said to Franklin, Well, Doctor, what have we got? A republic or a monarchy? A monarchy is when you have a king. Franklin, who was never short of words or wit or anything like this, shot back at the woman. A republic, madam, if you can keep it. So what's a republic anyway? A republic is a nation in which the supreme power rests in all of the citizens who have the right to vote and is executed by representatives who are elected, either directly or indirectly, by the people and are responsible to the people. The Constitution was only a beginning. The people would have to do a lot to make it work. If it had been a monarchy, if we had had a king, the people wouldn't have to do anything because the king does it all. The people don't have any responsibility. They also don't have any right except what the king gives them. But the people were going to have to do something because what we were given was a republic. So the opposite is true. It's we the people according to the document, according to the constitution and we the people are the ones that have to keep it. And it takes a continuing effort to keep a republic, a republic democracy going. You can't just walk away and think it's going to keep existing by itself. A government itself cannot and will not do what is necessary. If you take God and faith and morality and virtue out of the equation, everything inevitably falls apart. This is why a constitution by itself is not enough. You've got to have virtue, morality, and faith. And you've got to have God in the equation or it won't work. This is why you can't go to another country and have them write a constitution and tell them to elect a government and think it's going to work. If you don't have God and you don't have faith and you don't have morality, it falls apart. It never lasts. And you can't export faith in God. Here's a name for you. Lucius Quintius Cincinnatus. Everybody remember him? Lucius Quintus Cincinnatus was a Roman general that lived in the fifth century before Jesus. And he was living in retirement on his farm outside of Rome. When representatives from the Roman Senate came to him and found him working in his field. Powerful enemies of Rome were threatening the city. Called the Aquians. But anyway, they were threatening to invade the city. And so the Roman Senate found that the consul of Rome was a man that was incompetent and unable to deal with the threat that they were faced with. So they came to this retired general who was their most distinguished general and asked him, what they said is, we want to confer on you the role of dictator to take care of this problem. Now dictator didn't mean the same thing then that it means now, but it meant somebody with supreme power for a period of time. And when Cincinnatus heard their message, he immediately picked up his toga, which is significant in that means he accepted the charge, he accepted the responsibility He said farewell to his wife and he went to Rome. He called up every able-bodied man to fight and within 15 days he won the victory over the enemy. Immediately after winning the victory he resigned the dictatorship and returned to his farm. Other than Cincinnatus. No one in history has ever done such a thing or had ever done such a thing before. Power was someone that everybody, everybody craves. Everybody wants power and nobody, when they get it, gives it up. But Cincinnatus did. Again, no one had ever done such a thing until March of 1783 in Newburgh, New York. The Revolutionary War, this war of the United States that we were fighting against Britain to become free, was was within a month of being over. The fighting was over, but nobody really knew that at the time. There were over 7,000 troops around this area, American troops, in case the British decided to keep fighting. Washington had called together his officers and to give them a speech. And the reason that he called them together and the reason for his speech was because of a letter that was circulating among the officers. The letter proposed that the officers stage a coup. A coup is when you revolt and try to set up your own government. You read about it in some South American countries all the time where the government gets overthrown and a new government comes in. But the letter proposed that the officers stage a coup and present Congress with an ultimatum. Either find a way to pay us, and many of these officers hadn't been paid in years. So you can understand why they were a little angry. So here's the ultimatum, Congress. You either find a way to pay us, or we'll walk away and let Congress defend itself against the British, or more likely, they would themselves seize control of the government. They planned to put their leader, General Washington, at the head of this military dictatorship. After all, as they saw it, he's the one that won the fight. He's the one that deserved to lead a country that he had fought to create. And based on history, there was nothing unusual about this. This is the way things had always gone in every place in the world. The powerful are the ones that took control. But when Washington heard Their plan, he was shocked and he was furious. His own sense of virtue found their proposal offensive. Washington said a lot in the speech that he gave, and I won't go into all of that. But he promised to do all he could (coughs) to see that Congress found the money to pay his officers. But much more than that, he used words like this in his speech as you value your sacred honor, as you respect the rights of humanity, as you regard the national character of America, to express your utmost honor and detestation of the man who wishes, under any spacious faults, pretenses to overthrow the liberties of our country and and wickedly attempts to open the floodgates of civil discourse. This is what he's telling all these officers that had fought with him all these years. It's wicked what you're talking about. It's deceitful. It's dishonorable. He went on using words like patient virtue, unexampled patriotism, and dignity of your conduct and reputation and glory and sacred honor to these officers when he finished his speech he told his officers he had a letter from a virginia congressman he wanted to read to them he had trouble reading the small print of the letter so he pulled out a pair of glasses from his pocket he'd been using these glasses for a while, but never in front of his officers before. He said, gentlemen, you must pardon me. I have grown gray in your service and now find myself growing blind. Saying this, the mood in the room changed dramatically. Many people had been moved by his speech but now they were seeing Washington in a moment of weakness and they were like Isaiah, they became undone. At the sound of the, as he read the congressman's letter, many of the officers in the room started weeping. Washington was sometimes called the American Cincinnatus because he held his, his command only until the defeat of the British and at a time when he could have chosen great political power instead he returned to his farm just like Cincinnatus. Let me read Philippians 4, eight to you one more time. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, if there's anything worthy worthy of praise, think about these things. And when you think about these things put them into practice. That's what we're called to do as Christians. Let's pray. Lord, you know our hearts. And you know that they are not pure hearts. But we want them to be. We want them to be like the heart of Jesus. We pray that you would change us. That you would Have mercy on us, Lord. Even as you've had mercy on us in the past, have mercy again. And have mercy on your people in this country and enlighten our darkness. That we might be honorable. That we might think on these things, Lord. That we might put them into practice. And that we might do it all to the glory of your name because of your Son. Amen.